Well, it's great to see you guys. You can take your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to be back there this morning. Um, and I want to continue at the beginning. I want to continue the thought maybe that Jonathan shared last week by asking this question. So this last week, how did you do when things didn't turn out the way that you thought that they should turn out? Right? Like, we're always posed with that. Like, what do we do when things don't turn out the way that we think that they should turn out? How do we respond? How do you respond? What, what thoughts do you think about God? What, uh, um, what do you say to others? Um, for about the last month or so, I've been making my way through a really thought-provoking book for me called When God's Ways Make No Sense by Larry Crabb. And one of the recurring thoughts he mentions in this book has to do with the goodness of God or our thoughts regarding his goodness. And he really speaks from an honest heart when he says things like this. He says, I know God is good, but there are times in my life when I wonder, what is he really good for? We can joke and it's funny and it's, I think in all honesty, there's moments of us, I think even when false gospel thoughts come into our minds from time to time, we subtly think that, well, I just follow God and I show up at church and I have my devotions every day and I spend time praying. And if I do these things, then God's going to make sure that my life turns out good. You know, like every Christian movie ever made, right? And when we do these things and and the things in our life do not turn out how we define good. I'm not saying we ever even verbally say it, but I wonder if the thought ever crosses our mind. Well, come on, God, what are you really good for? And we learned in Habakkuk last week, and maybe when things don't go the way that we think that they should, we're placed really in a situation in life where we probably should tremble before the Lord and then trust him. It's an opportunity before us probably on a daily basis that, um, that we have this opportunity to trust God in these situations. But this morning, I want to take it a step further, okay? I want to go a step further. What if the hard times that happen in our life are a direct result from our faithfulness to God? What, what if the bad comes from other people because of our faithful Christian presence in their life? Then what? What if the hardships come because we're bold with the proclamation of the gospel? Now, as we jump back in the book of Colossians, let us not forget, um, we're in verse 24 this morning through 27, but let us not forget in verse 23 of Paul's exhortation or his idea to remain in the gospel, to cling to Jesus and the cross, to center our lives and our ministry and our thinking on the cross of Christ. But as we do, let us remember that clinging to the gospel doesn't mean that things are going to turn out easy. This morning, I'm going to argue it's probably the opposite. That if we cling to the gospel, things are going to become difficult. And if we cling to the gospel, we will at times in our life find ourselves under affliction and persecution because of our faithful gospel witness in the lives of others where we live, work, and play. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, reads as this through verse 27. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's kind of our big idea this morning, kind of the big thought that we're going to talk about is this, is that afflictions should never hinder gospel presence should never hinder gospel presence, but they're meant to further gospel proclamation. That the afflictions that we receive um, through personal experience, I think what we're going to learn this morning from the Apostle Paul in our text, that his afflictions for Jesus never stopped him from ministry, but they fueled him for more boldness in ministry, that they continued in him the pursuit of gospel ministry for the sake of others. That suffering for the gospel promotes more boldness for gospel witness. And honestly, this seems backwards, doesn't it? Like it seems backwards. It seems, and we may think it would be the other way around. We may think that when we're afflicted because of the persecution that we receive, because of our gospel witness, we may think it may move us to maybe be quiet or maybe not share as much or it may um, it may temper our enthusiasm because like, hey, do I really want to keep talking about the gospel if people are doing stuff to me? That's not Paul's experience. And I pray as we make our way through this verse, or these verses this morning, that we'll also come to this same conviction. So, so what I want to do is I want to give you three words, okay? First word's already up there. Three words to help motivate a really gospel proclamation even while we're afflicted, okay? Word number one is just perspective, perspective. That when we suffer because of gospel witness, we understand this, that a lot of times our focus becomes on us. And what I want to do in this passage, I think what Paul does is he zooms the lens back in order to see the big picture of what's really going on. Let's see the whole forest and not just the tree of our suffering. And when we pull back the perspective, it helps take our focus off of ourself and place it on others. Do you see that in verse 24? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Verse 24, he says, it is for your sake that I'm going through this stuff. In verse, at the end of verse four, he says, it's for the church that I go through this stuff. In verse 25, he goes on, he says, this is for you. Um, now friends, let's not forget that Paul is writing from prison. He is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's saying that he is rejoicing in his suffering for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Colossae people. And maybe because we suffer so little that we don't get that joy aspect at times, 
Maybe for us, honestly, just the little suffering that we may go through, um, it's more of a nuisance than really a persecution. But the overwhelming testimony of those in Scripture, what Jesus said and what the, uh, really what people experienced throughout the New Testament is that suffering, persecution, affliction because of the gospel brings joy. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Here's what Jesus says at the end of the, uh, uh, of the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, happy, like a deep-rooted joy that is given to those who go through this sort of persecution. I mean, what Jesus says, when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Huh. Acts chapter 5, the... um, Uh, the apostles are imprisoned. And the leaders of Israel didn't know what to do with them and they beat them and then released them. And Acts 5, 41 says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Man, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, really? Maybe it's, it's joyful because as Paul says here, he's willing to suffer Many afflictions because it's not for himself. Like he's not going through these afflictions for himself. He's going through them for others, for you. And as he writes this, um, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this and was studying this, I was like, hmm. If you remember the history of the church of Colossae, Paul never went there. Right? Paul never went to Colossae. So how is his suffering for the sake of the Colossae people? I think the answer to that question is found in the rest of the verse. He goes on to say, in, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is the church. What Paul is saying is that he does not care what happens to his physical body. He cares not what happens to his flesh, but his purpose is to fulfill his calling for the church, that all he is doing is thinking of others first. So the answer to the question, I think, as to how he suffers for the class of people or for their sake, is, is that he is so engaged in talking about Jesus and, and spreading the gospel that no matter what happens to him, he joyfully endures it because it will only further future gospel message to continue to spread. For them, Paul's gospel proclamation went to Epaphras. Epaphras' gospel proclamation went to them at the building and the starting and the planting of the church of Colossae. And what Paul is willing to give up of his flesh, he is willing to do anything to do his share for the church in order to fill up, quote, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, I got to tell you, it's one of the most highly debated passages in the book of Colossians, and honestly, quite possibly in the New Testament. Like, what, Paul, do you mean is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Anyone think that is that we read it? Like what in the world? 
As I understand this, it becomes rich, I think, and beneficial for my life and hopefully for you too today. First, let me share what it's not. Okay, here's what it's not. Um, It doesn't mean that Paul is suffering because Jesus did not suffer enough for the sins of humanity. Can we agree with that? The what is lacking is not in reference to the atonement. He doesn't mean that by suffering, he did, or maybe you and I conversely now, add to Christ's work on the cross. This would be in contradiction to what he writes in the rest of the New Testament, as well as the book that he is writing right now concerning the finished work of Jesus Christ. I mean, just a couple of verses earlier, Paul says that Jesus reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. He never says that something is lacking in the payment that's made for that reconciliation. In fact, he's going to say the opposite. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says that Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt that stood against those who believe, and he nailed it to the cross. And so, friends, listen, just, just get this, that when Jesus declared, it is finished, guess what? It was finished, right? Like, he didn't need us to come in and fill in the gaps of what's lacking in the atonement of Christ. There's only one redeemer and there's one death that atoned for the sins of people. So what is lacking in Christ's afflictions that Paul needs to fill up? And, and I would argue that you and I are called to as well. I think here's the answer as best as I understand it. There's a lot of things that kind of flow into this, but I think what is lacking is not the depth of his afflictions, but the breadth of it. The problem, you can see it's on the screen, the problem is not that's not sufficient, but that not everyone knows of it. What is lacking is the spreading of the message of the gospel to all people. Um, John Piper, in a little book called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, he said this. He said, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth, as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe, What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted in the world. These afflictions and what they mean are still hidden to most people. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed to all the nations. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. So, like, what does it have to do with us? I mean, what does it have to do with suffering that we may experience because of our faithful gospel presence in the lives of unbelievers? Piper goes on and says, uh, goes on to say, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross... As the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Guys, here's the perspective that we get and we need when we suffer persecution. In some way, friends, listen, in some way we suffer, when we suffer, I'm not talking suffering like just 
the fact that life outside the garden is hard. I'm talking suffering and persecution, afflictions because of faithful gospel witness. We are showing those that are persecuting us as well as the watching world that Jesus is worthy to be afflicted for. Right? I mean, do we really believe that? I mean, it's so easy here in our, man, it's so easy, especially in the United States, to come and say, I want to be saved from hell. Jesus, you paid for my sin. And now let me just go live this comfortable life because I don't want anyone to hurt me. And it's almost like we're trying to bring heaven to earth instead of showing people what heaven is. That Jesus is worth being afflicted for. He's worth it. You want to know why he's worth it? Because he was afflicted. See, when we say that Jesus came and suffered for the sins of people, and then we're willing to walk out and be persecuted for that message, we are in some way a living message to those that we're sharing it with. They are seeing in us that we're willing to go through this. They look at us and go, well, they must really believe that. Right? And in so doing, we are filling up what's lacking that others will come to know and see the afflictions of Christ. Now, what does that mean to us? I mean, um, maybe to answer that, it would be helpful to think of, of, of when you hear of the persecution of other Christians, what does that do for you? Like kind of flip, flip that around. Um, so when you hear that someone in the body has been afflicted or persecuted because they shared the gospel with people, what does that instill in you? Um, what does it do for the church? Um, I can think of several possibilities of what it may do. Um, I think it may encourage the church. I mean, it does seem a bit weird that we are encouraged when others are persecuted, but when people are faithful to their calling, doesn't it just well up in us? Like, all right. I think it motivates the church. Like, if they're doing it, I can. They're faithful. I can do it. I see their resolve, and it moves me to be more faithful in what he has called me to do in my life. Um, I think it moves the church to pray. You talk about something that drives a church to its knees is when people in the church are afflicted because of the persecution. Now, read the book of Acts sometimes. Here's an interesting little uh, Bible study if you want to. Read the book of Acts and notice the prayers that the people pray in persecution. They don't pray, God, make it safer. They pray, give us boldness. So that, so that we can keep going. I think it moves the church to be dependent upon Jesus. It draws us into Christ. Remember the Damascus Road experience for Saul at the time when he's going and this great light shines, kind of like these lights right here now to me. Um, and, and he hears this voice and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's like, who are you? right? He says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. 
Who is Paul persecuting? Christians. So when persecution breaks out, we get to identify with Christ in a unique and special way. I think it also purifies the church. Persecution always purifies the church. You know what it does? It separates the sheep from the goats. Like if you are like really good at playing the game of church and persecution breaks out, guess what you don't want to play anymore? The game of church. Um, last year I was... I did like a little interview when I was at um, Moody Bible Institute, some missions conference, and they did a little interview um, talking about religious freedom. Look, uh, I love the fact that we're free to meet today. That's awesome. We take it for granted so often. And yet, where is the church growing the fastest and the strongest? It's not where it's free. It's where it costs. The underground church in China, in India, and in Southeast Asia is rampant. Why? Why? Because people, (laughs) their church is pure, and they're pursuing Christ. And the persecution and the afflictions that they get, it drives them to keep sharing. I think it spreads the gospel. The gospel continues to go forward. I mean, even as we talk even now, you begin thinking about your life and where you live, work, and play. Who needs the gospel? Who's the Spirit of the Lord implanting on your mind now? Who do you desire to come be a Christian? Guys, listen, perspective. The purpose for when we're afflicted produces something greater in us. It inspires us and spreads the afflictions of Christ to a watching world. David Garland said this. He said, by faith... Paul preaches the gospel, which in turn brings affliction, which then produces in him greater faith, which in turn creates greater boldness of speech, which then produces additional affliction. For the minister of Christ, the pattern of believing, speaking, suffering, it's inescapable and perpetual. It's this circle that just keeps going and going and going. So perspective, one. Second word is this, faithful. Faithful. Um, look at uh, verse 25. He's talking about um, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul begins by making reference back to the church that he was made a minister of according to the stewardship of God. Paul's simply saying that, listen, He's entrusted with a position from the Lord in the church. It was bestowed on him for their benefit. And don't miss it a second time. He says he's doing it for their benefit, for them. Now, a side note here. Allow me to reiterate in case you've forgotten, because I'm sure you've been told at some point, that all spiritual gifts are entrusted to us, to people from the Lord, are for the betterment of others, not us. So if you're in Christ, you've been given a spiritual gift. Guess what? The spiritual gift is not for you. It's for the body of Christ. Your gifts are given 
for others in the body of Christ, just like Paul says for their benefit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that these gifts are given for the common good. Ephesians 4, 12 says it's for the building up of the body of Christ. And so being faithful to his calling was for other people in the same way that our calling in the church is for other people. That being faithful in your stewardship of your gifts and your calling means that we give ourselves up for other people, even if it means in order that we do so, we end up being persecuted and afflicted and suffer. Now, specifically for Paul's calling was what? He was a preacher of the word of God. To make the word of God fully known, the end of verse 25 says, He was called to take the gospel, we're going to learn, to the Gentiles. He was a church planter. He was an evangelist. And it could be easy to read this and think, thankful I wasn't called like Paul. Right? Like, I don't think I could do that. And maybe you're right to a point. I don't believe any of us are called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That was Paul's unique calling. But none of us have been given a calling like, like he was. But if we move too fast past that, I think we'll be shocked. Um, and we miss out on a depth of something to learn. That all Christians are called to preach the gospel. All Christians are. I was at a conference this last week in California. And one of the speakers was saying, if you... If you say you're a follower of Jesus, let me reverse that. He said, if you're not helping people through evangelism and discipleship follow Jesus, what does that say about you being a follower of Jesus? We may not be an evangelist, but we're called to do the work of an evangelist, right? 2 Timothy 4, 5. We're called to share the gospel with the unbelieving. This is not just something left to the professionals. And I use that term very tongue-in-cheek, okay? I think that's the point of Romans chapter 10, that nobody will believe if they have not heard and they will not hear if we do not share with them, if there's no preacher. Who's the preacher? It's us. We're called to preach the gospel where we live, where we work, and where we play. But I'll acknowledge that some are called to be preachers. So let me illustrate it like this. Um, There's a difference between playing golf and being a golfer. Right? Like, I like to play golf. People say, well, are you any good? I'm like, well, compared to who? Right? Compared to some people, they're going to think I'm a golfer compared to professionals who are actually golfers? No, I'm just someone who plays golf. For the one, it's something that they enjoy doing. For the other, it's their life. It's everything to them. In fact, they've been given some sort of special ability to accomplish that which they're called for. For us, we have all been called to preach, but there are some who are called to be preachers. Acts chapter eight, um, Acts chapter eight, verses four and five. This is on the heels of Saul's persecution to the church, the killing of Stephen, and then the church begins to scatter. It says, "Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word." Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Verse four. 
um, is the word for evangelism, right? They begin to announce the good news. This is all those who have been scattered because of the persecution. Note that. Because of persecution, they run. And what happens when they run? They take the message of the gospel with them. But verse 5 zeroes in on a man by the name of Philip who goes down Caruso. He begins to preach, to herald, to proclaim. I would argue some people are called to be in verse 5 like, like uh, Philip. All Christians are called to do what verse 4 says. And it would be unwise for us to dismiss what Paul says here as if he was some super spiritual, special stewardship given man. Yes, he had a special calling, but that doesn't dismiss the reality that every Christian is also called to be faithful to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. And we do not even have to go around the world to do that. We can do it here. You guys get, there's thousands and thousands of people in our area who don't know Jesus. And some who've never heard the gospel. I know how foreign that might sound, but there's people here who have never heard the gospel. According to one study, and we shared this in, about a year ago, I think, that the missions cut covers 116,000 unclaimed people in Lake County, over 40,000 unclaimed in Geauga. And it's only getting worse. It's not getting better, right? Like we have such a great opportunity to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We have the opportunity to be faithful in the mission that he has called us to, even if it means afflictions for the sake of others. Third word is this. And then we're done. Rejoice. Rejoice. Kind of catch the flow here from verse 25. I mean, look back at verse 24. Do you see what's the word that it starts there? Paul uses at the beginning. He says he rejoices. Why does he rejoice in suffering for others' sake and filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction? Is Paul some sort of masochist? No. He says he's been called, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that's given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory that he endures the afflictions and sufferings for others because he knows the mystery that is talked about in verses 26 and 27. Could it be that he knows that those for whom he is suffering, those for whom that he is enduring these afflictions have an opportunity now that those people didn't even knew existed to be part of God's kingdom, to be part of the plan This is the reason why he preaches the word of God to those who do not know Christ. This is why he's willing to endure all suffering because of the mystery. What's he talking about when he refers to the mystery? It's a term that's used in the Greek terminology world to describe a secret rite of a secret club. Think of like secret handshake or admission to a secret club. But here, it's meant to be a reference to that which was hidden 
It was a mystery, but now it's been revealed. That which is a secret is now out in the open. <coughs> that everyone has a chance to know what the secret handshake is. What's that? It's the gospel. The mystery is that at one point in time, it was hidden for all ages and generations, but now it's been revealed. And so what has God, what was it that God has revealed to make known? It's the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. It is that the Gentiles can be a part of the plan of God. I would think most of you would say amen with that. Right? Why? Because that's us. And what Paul's saying, it, this wasn't a plan B. Like, it wasn't like, well, the Jews rejected Jesus, so I guess we'll open it up to everyone else. No. Even back to the beginning, when God called Abraham, God told him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God has always had that plan to save Gentiles as well as the Jews. And friends, listen, this affliction thing is made easier as it brings joy to our life because we realize that we are going through those things so that those who were not a part could be part of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> One last thing. What does it mean when he writes in verse 27? The riches of the glory of his mystery, which is this. This is, this is great. Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we've studied identity issues before. We talk about identity issues. We talk a lot about that you are, as a Christian, in Christ. But this is saying... Christ is in you. Huh. Christ is in the Christian. Simply put, Paul is trying to show the intimate relationship between Jesus and his people. Which, if true, and I believe it is, is why when others see us afflicted, they see Jesus being afflicted. And this intimate relationship with Jesus is our hope of glory. Here's why we can rejoice. Listen, here's why we can rejoice. Are you ready for this? Once again, because our hope of eternal life, our hope that, that even if they kill us for our faith, like, like our hope, and maybe even worse for us, that they may not like us, our hope of pain and suffering that we may experience, our hope is not based on us or what we have accomplished. Our hope is based on the God of the universe who came down to the earth. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserve to live. He conquered death through resurrection on our behalf and he ascended to heaven to be our advocate with the Father. And as Paul says elsewhere, Jesus is our living hope. Why? Because of our special relationship, there's certainty that we will be there once this mortal flesh comes to an end. Until then, friends, let us be like Paul. Let us be committed to the gospel proclamation, no matter the affliction, that as the more we're afflicted, the more I believe gospel proclamation will continue. So let me end with this thought. Um, I find myself doing a lot of 
evangelism, missional training at churches these days. And, uh, you know, most Christians I meet, they want to be faithful witnesses of the gospel. I actually believe that. I actually believe deep down in the heart that most Christians, they want to be faithful. They, they want to. I, I believe most churches value gospel witness as a part of their core values, and they want to do it. They desire it, and yet the more trainings I do, the more I realize how unfaithful we all are in this area, how unlike our Savior that we are. And so I had this thought, what if, what if one of the reasons why Christians and why churches are not as faithful as they should be, what if, could it be that we're not as faithful to live missionally because we've never experienced persecution? What do I mean? Um... We're so afraid of what will happen to our friends, our family, our, like if we press in with gospel witness and we're so scared of what's going to happen to us, we're scared of losing them, we're scared of them hating us, we're, there's so much fear that we end up remaining silent, but I wonder if we pressed in just past that little bit, like we just were able to get across that one little line and even if afflictions come, we'd find ourselves, oh, I can be more bold. I can be more bold now. And with those that we come in contact with, where we live, where we work, and where we play, and we can press on that when afflictions come, that our gospel witness doesn't decrease, but will actually increase to the glory of God and the good of those around us. Let me pray. Father, Father, honest, I, I know that I don't press in as much as maybe I want to, there are fears that wrap up in me. Um, yeah, Lord, uh, I see the example of Paul here, and I, I see and I hear him that, that, that these afflictions he deals with are just for the sake of others, that they could come to know the gospel, that, that Jesus is worthy to be afflicted for because of his afflictions for us. So move in my heart first, Lord. Father, move in this church to be faithful gospel proclaimers to those around them. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, but out of great love for you. In Christ's name.